Take your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we are going to continue where we left off last week. This is part two, our series uh, that we are in, a uh, expositional series is called Living and Looking, Living for Christ, Looking for His Return. And this morning, we're going to continue in looking at the, the uh, enemy of the church, part two. And if you uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 through 20, I'm going to read all that, but we zeroed in on verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And we spent a lot of time talking about uh, when Paul started the church in, in Thessalonica, Acts 17, there was uh, great progress of the gospel. People were saved and coming to Christ made folks en envious and jealous and they formed a mob and ran them out because of what God was doing there. And so that's why he's writing this letter, because he hasn't been able to go back and visit with them. Verse 18, in case they were curious of why he hadn't been there, because we wanted to come to you. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. That was, you know, just to get a sense of his desire. But this phrase, but Satan hindered us. Verse 19, for what is our hope and joy or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What is our boast at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So this morning we're going to look at part two of this a little more topical because I'm just zeroing in on verse 18 of the phrase, but Satan hindered us. Can Satan hinder the sovereign work of God? How did Satan hinder his plans? Does Satan hinder uh, the efforts of the church and believers still today? And so last week, we are not going to go over these, it's online, I encourage you to uh, catch up and listen to it, but last week, we, out of the four, we only looked at three aspects of this, and last week, as we looked at the enemy or adversary of God's church, we looked at the existence of Satan as our adversary, his existence. A lot of people are confused. He's not in a little red outfit and not sure whether he's a myth. You know, C.S. Lewis says that you can go to one or two extremes. You can kind of believe that he's a myth and a figure of your imagination, or you become so demon-obsessed, everything's a demon. But either way, Satan is pleased by those two extremes. And so what is the balance? The Bible's clear that there is an existence of a created being that has fallen, that is doomed and defeated. There is an existence of Satan, and he is our adversary. Secondly, secondly, we examine the examination of Satan's attacks. He always aims uh, among many things, but he targets Jesus Christ. He tried to destroy the, the bloodline of the messianic uh, bloodline. He opposes what Christ does because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And in, in Satan, there is no life, there is no truth, there is no way. So everything that Satan, uh, or Jesus is... He will target and try to diminish, and some of the cults and some of the false religions always, as I said, always aim their big guns 
at diminishing the biblical person of Jesus Christ, who he is. And so we looked at that. And then we looked at also that he attacks not only Christ, but he attacks the followers of Jesus. Remember, remember Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the adversary of the brethren. He's an adversary. He's not a friend. He's a foe. And so the Bible counsels us to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then we looked at the extent of Satan's authority. How does that square with the sovereignty of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God? We talked about how we know that demons do not, cannot possess believers, a Christian. They oppress, but cannot inhabit or uh, possess but, the, but God sometimes permits Satan to afflict Christians externally with adversity for various reasons. Uh, we don't always understand the reasons, and we looked at that. We looked at examples of jo- Joseph. We looked at the example of Job, uh, Jesus, uh, Judas. We looked at Paul. Remember Paul, the thorn in the flesh, and God said, my grace is sufficient. So, so I encourage you to go back because there's a lot of things in that that were preparatory to uh, what we'll uh, uh, talk about today. But here's where we want to transition. Even though we know that Satan has been defeated, we still are engaged in a struggle. We are still engaged in warfare. Uh, a spiritual warfare still exists. And the church, as the church propagates the gospel, as the church preaches the gospel as the church is faithful to the mission of Jesus, carrying out the mission of the gospel, advancing, and people are coming to faith in Christ, and that uh, uh, they are faithful to that, we should not be surprised that the enemy still wants to hinder that mission and hinder those who are engaged in that mission. Satan attacks the work of God, which today he's working through the church, Churches, ecclesia in the Greek means called out ones. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It's the people of God, the called out ones that are engaged in the purposes of Christ. And Satan still wants to hinder any way he can uh, that mission and that purpose of the church. He is still our enemy. He is defeated. Jesus finally and uh, totally uh, defeated Satan at the cross. He is, uh, again, will the consummation of his doom and, uh, and uh, damnation will be uh, at, the consummate, or at the coming of Christ as Jesus uh, makes that final. So I likened it to, uh, I thought about like World War II or even in some other uh, wars, but World War II when the Nazis, Germany, surrendered in 1945, they surrendered to the Allies. Uh, and made an unconditional surrender, but as the occupied troops came into Europe and Germany, where the Nazis once occupied, there was still fighting. They still had to be aware that there were still those who still wanted to engage in warfare and kill them. And so as far as subduing, even though the war was over, surrender had been made, there was still the subduing part. You remember when Israel was told... The Lord said, I have given you the promised land. I have given it to you. What did they have to do? 
They had to go take it. They had to go battle some people. They had to go engage with that. So again, we stand on the side of victory, but we are still engaged in warfare. Just notice I had a page completely out of order, and that would be a very short service if I jump to the last page first. You might be happy to get to Golden Corral before the Lutherans, but we will continue on, all right? So, um, so we want to look this morning, we looked at those three, the existence of Satan as our adversary, examine his attacks, uh, the extent of his authority, how does that how can we mesh that with the sovereignty of God? And we touched on that. And so part two, we're going to look at the fourth uh, part of this more topical study, even though we're going verse by verse, section by section through 1 Thessalonians. I just kind of wanted to spend a little time on this. And the fourth aspect of our study that we'll conclude this morning is the ensnarement of Satan's assault, the ensnarement of Satan's assault. Again, we're still looking at that, that part in chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul says, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. He is hindering. He is still uh, uh, trying to hinder the work of God, as we said. In the process, Satan seeks to hinder by either influencing uh, the church negatively through false uh, uh, teaching and, and corruption uh, and how he attacks. And so in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, I wanted to use the seven churches that are listed there. So I encourage you to turn in your own Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be in chapter 2 and 3. We're just going to use the seven churches that are listed or mentioned uh, in Revelation 2 and chapter 3 as examples of how we see Satan hindering and attacking the church and a couple of examples of what the Lord uh, instructs us of how to overcome or how to withstand these attacks. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be in chapter 2 and chapter 3, as we illustrate the ensnarement of Satan's assault on the church. Just keep in mind that these seven churches were actual historical churches. The Bible refers to them in what's, what the Bible refers to as Asia Minor. Today that would be in modern day Turkey where these churches existed. And so these were actual historical churches that existed, and Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one that is revealing. It's called revelation, not revelations. It's a revelation to the Apostle John as he is encountering this, this vision that the Lord Jesus is, is giving to him, and it begins with chapter 2 and 3 with these seven churches of how the Lord is, is working and how the Lord is in the midst of these churches. Now, as I said, these churches were actual historical, geographical churches, all right, that historically existed. But they also serve as somewhat of a, of a template or examples, if you will, of churches that have existed all through time in one form or another. Some have tried to uh, narrow and make them historical events or whatever, but I think they reflect how churches or reflect churches that have existed all through history, even though they were actual physical 
uh, territorial churches when uh, John wrote the letter of Revelation or when it was revealed to him. But as we look at this and see how Satan seeks to hinder the church or how he seeks to disrupt the church, it's interesting as we are talking about this aspect of spiritual warfare. It's interesting that as we look through these, keep in mind that the Lord warned these churches, but it's interesting what he didn't tell them that sometimes we take for granted as, as biblical. Uh, back in 1986, a book was uh, published that kind of is one of those books that come along in uh, Christian publishing, and, and if you haven't read it, you're just not with it, and everybody is into it, and it just seems to kind of dominate. And some of you uh, uh, have remember this book, and I would not recommend it, but I'm just mentioning it because of its influence. And it was a book by, written by Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness. How many of you have heard of that book before? Okay, it is a novel. It is fiction. Do you know what fiction is? It's not true. All right, it's made up. Now, sometimes fiction can be accurate in its broad sense, but it's still fictional. But this book, uh, written, and he had a follow-up book, I think, called Piercing the Darkness. And what happened in, in, in kind of a, you know, churches go through fads. And this just created this, spiritual warfare fad that created all of this type of uh, teaching and energy that, in my estimation and others, that lacked biblical support. Uh, one of the things written in this novel, it included uh, these, these stories and adventures of Christians fighting with packs of demons who take over towns and infiltrate the government, the educational system, and churches. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, Satan certainly influences his own, does he not? Okay, so I'm not, I'm not denying that. But, but as an aspect of warfare of what churches should be engaged in, and one of the things that came from this that almost became, you know, people just kind of took it for granted, is this whole idea that believers are to seek out and confront demons in their cities, their neighborhoods, and they are to take, engage in what, is they call, what was called territorial warfare. And there's stories, and again, I know some of these may be extreme stories, of, of Christians that would uh, uh, fly in airplanes over cities, casting out demons over cities. And, and even, I'm not against prayer walks. I'm not, I'm not, I think if you can walk and pray, that's a good thing. Walk and chew gum, that's even better, all right? But walk and pray. But some of that was generated that we're going to walk and we're going to claim territory and cast out demons from our neighborhoods and from our cities. The problem is, is the lack of any biblical support for some of this activity. And what people can do is they can go to the other extreme as if there is no spiritual warfare. Again, the Bible does speak about the devil. The Bible does speak about spiritual warfare. But we got to make sure that our practices are not derived from novels, hello, but from Scripture. And that's always been the problem. And so this morning we want to use and look at these examples and just see some things that we can derive from this. What did the Lord say to these seven churches? Now five of these churches had a negative 
report card, if you will, and two did not. Uh, and so what did the Lord instruct them? Did he tell them to uh, take dominion uh, over the devil and cast out demons, to engage in territorial warfare? Uh, did he encourage them to confront the powers of darkness and engage in this type of activity? Well, let's see what happens here and just use this as an example this morning and how the Lord instructs us to deal in the church when we are seeing Satan hindering the work of God. Again, we're not going to exhaust these because that doesn't serve our purpose. I did a series several years back on Wednesdays on the seven churches. But again, I just want to use these as kind of a template uh, to address this idea of how Satan hinders the church and what should be our response. I'm going to look at these out of order this morning. I'm going to look at the uh, at five of the negative ones first, skip a couple, and look at those other two at the end, okay? Number one is the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. This is the loveless church. The Ephesian church had an extraordinary beginning. In Acts chapter 19, uh, you see that Paul... Uh, spent about three years in Ephesus, and Paul saw the church uh, grow tremendously. In fact, in Ephesus, there was a tremendous revival that took place in Ephesus where uh, people were being saved and, and uh, the structures of the city were being uh, somewhat overturned and disrupted because of what God was doing there. Look with me in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 3 and how Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Jesus says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, verse 2, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves, call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You have not grown weary. Ephesus was not an easy place to do ministry. It was an idolatrous city, the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. These religious cults were engaged in all type of sexual immorality, and it was very prevalent in the city. But yet, in spite of all that, God used the ministry of Paul and others to preach the gospel, and kingdoms of darkness were, were being uh, falling away because of the advancement of the gospel. This church worked hard. They hated sin, uh, they, were, they dealt with false teachers, verse 2. Uh, they had a biblical standard. They had a statement of faith. It wasn't kind of just a willy-nilly group. We would say that church is doctrinally sound, right? But they had a problem, verse 4. But Jesus said, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
They were doctrinally straight. Every T was crossed. Every I was dotted. They were orthodox, but the problem was, even though they loved the truth about Christ, they had lost a love for Christ himself. And that can happen. And you know what? Satan hinders the work of God when that type of thing happens in the church. Imagine this if your spouse came home to you and said, Hey, by the way, I just want you to know I don't love you anymore. But don't worry, nothing will change. I'm not moving. I'll still pay the bills. I'll still be your wife or your husband. But I just want you to know I don't love you anymore. And, you know, just thought we'd get that out in the open. How would that work? It wouldn't work at all. Hello? It wouldn't work at all. Jesus says, look, you're doing all the right things. But there's this one fatal issue. You're not doing it out of a love for me. You see, if you're growing in doctrine, and you're growing in truth, and that's commendable, but it doesn't endear you with affections of worship and love for God and His Son Jesus and the Holy Spirit, then something is fatally wrong. But notice what Jesus says and tells them to do. Verse 5 Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And he says, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That lampstand representing the very blessing and presence of God. I will remove it unless you repent. Verse 6 says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of debate on that, but apparently they were false teachers. And he said, you, you also hate those. I hate them too, the Lord says. So, so here you see how the enemy, this is where we want you, to, want you to focus on, see how the enemy can subtly hinder the progress of the gospel through a church that is a church in form, but has no real love for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Do you see that as a problem? I mean, you're just a club that loves Bible teaching, but, but you really don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. I think about those folks in Matthew 7, where Jesus said, there will be those that come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. Remember, and they, they weren't pagans because they talked about all the things that they did for Jesus. Cast out demons, prophesy in your name. They did a lot of extraordinary works. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 7? He said, depart from me because I never knew you. You were doing all the stuff, but you weren't doing it and certainly had no relationship with me. That's a problem. And the enemy can hinder the work of God through a congregation that loves its truth but doesn't love the truth giver. We're going to skip Smyrna and come back to that, verses 8 through 11. But look down at verses 12 through 17. And we'll look at the second, the other church. And this is the church at Pergamos. These are, again, these are actual cities. In fact, if you were to map these out, uh, and maybe your 
Bible or somebody look online, you'll see that Ephesus, this, the way these cities were structured, it was a trade route that kind of started in Ephesus as the main hub, and these cities kind of went in a circular route as though that's how things were traveled in business and commerce. And Ephesus being the main center of the gospel in this area, more than likely planted and started these other churches that sprung from what was being done in Ephesus. So the second church, the church at Pegamus, is the compromising church. Pegamus was, again, a tough city. All these Greek cities were steeped in paganism and false religion. It was uh, worshipped Zeus, which was the greatest of the Greek deities. It had a huge altar for Zeus. Verse 13 the Lord says to the church at Pegamus, Pergamus, I'm sorry, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now you would think if you were to do some territorial marching, it would be where Satan dwells, but he doesn't tell them to do that, all right? Uh, it was a pagan. It was a pagan city, but yet God had at one time or had a group of believers there. But He says in verse fourteen, "But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." And you can read that in Numbers twenty-four in the Old Testament, where a false prophet by the name of Balaam uh, had led the Israelites to engage in uh, intermarriage outside of uh, Judaism and to engage with pagans and to follow idolatrous practices. The, the point is, is that this is a church who was compromising truth. They were compromising with the world. Pergamos had begun to court the world and engage and indulge in that which was unbiblical practices and behavior. That's why it's often referred to as a compromising church. How does Satan hinder the church in his mission? Is when the church tolerates sin in its midst. When the church's message might sound the same, but because of its compromise with the world... It has eaten away its foundation and spoiled its testimony. You remember Paul? This isn't on the screen. But Paul's counsel about not being connected to the world. I mean, I know we're in the world. We're not talking about, you know, going off on another planet or something. He's talking about the philosophy, the culture, the values of the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6... He said, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. You see, the church should be a distinct entity from the culture. Unfortunately, there is a mindset with some to see how much we can adapt as a church to the culture, how much we can integrate practices 
and uh, ways of the culture so that when quote-unquote unbelievers come into our building under what we're doing, they won't feel so alienated. They'll kind of feel at home. There's a problem there. I'm not saying we find ways to be rude and obnoxious. Visitors come through the door. We don't say, what are you doing in here? What do you want? You know, we're not seeker-friendly. We make everybody an enemy until they, we know what they're... Re- we're not trying... You know, that's silly, obviously. Remember what Jesus said in First Or Paul, actually, John said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When Satan attacks... Notice the pattern here, even just what we've done so far. When Satan hinders and attacks the church... He starts very subtly by causing us to lose our first love, changing our affections. Then we begin to compromise with the world. And as our love cools, it becomes easier to fall into the trap of the system and compromise. And by not loving God, we are prone to love what's around us. Third, is the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira. And this is the corrupt church. The corrupt church. Now listen to me. If the church at Pegamus, or Pergamus, I don't know what Pegamus is. Is that a, I don't know what that is. I keep saying it wrong. Pergamus, Pergamus. If the church at Pergamus may have been married to the world, the church at Thyatira was celebrating its anniversary. All right? It's a corrupt church. Ephesus had lost its first love. Pergamos had compromised with the world. And Thyatira had just opened the floodgate of sin into its midst. Revelation 2, 19 through 20. The Lord Jesus says to this church, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You tolerate it. You tolerate out and out. And again, I don't, I don't think there was, there was a literal woman named Jezebel, but the spirit and the uh, and again, you can go back into First Kings eighteen and read all about Jezebel. But he's saying you tolerate this type of false teaching or cultish teaching that actually is leading people astray to where they are even engaging in detestable sexual immorality because it is being justified by this false teaching or false prophetess. Verse 24, but to the rest of you, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, thankfully there were some that weren't doing this. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of who? Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. And then he goes on to say, verse 25, Only hold 
fast what you have until I come. He doesn't say, I want you to cast out the demon of Jezebel. He doesn't say, I want you to march around one of their temples and cast out devils and take over that territory. What does he say? I want you who have not embraced this falsehood that are faithful, I want you to stay steady. I want you to hold fast to the truth. What was Christ's instruction? He told them, he didn't say go bind the devil. He says stay true. Hold fast. It's hard. The tide is, you're swimming against the tide. But stay and hold fast to what you have until I come. And he says, verse 26, I think in the NIV, to the one who is victorious, and notice this, and does my will on Sundays. Does my will when things are easy and the government is favorable. Does my will to the end. To the end. I will give authority over the nations. The fourth church is the church at Sardis. Verse 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. This is the dead church. Dead churches are no threat to the devil. So he probably doesn't even mess with them. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. A dead church, no threat. No threat. Sardis, interestingly, was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was synonymous with wealth, Sardis, in that period of time. But today, not only does the city not exist, but that church does not exist. It was a dead church. It went out of existence like the city. And it was to this degenerate dead church, Christ said, verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And maybe there were some, it was, they were on life support. For I have found your works, those who are about to die, I have not, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. All they had was form. When I saw that and was thinking about it, I was thinking about in um, our history, a lot of what is sometimes referred to as historic Christian denominations. Some historic Christian denominations, and I'm not going to get into labeling them, but uh, some of them through history were, began as great movements of God, and through the years, because of doctrinal compromise and changes in their understanding and acceptance of the Bible as the authority of the Word of God, and certainly you deny the authority of the Word of God, you deny that what it says about Jesus and His person and His deity, and we, we have to question those. Those aren't reliable. And over time, a church that it had a good reputation has slowly withered to where it's 
dead or on life support. And sometimes, you don't see it too much today, but you'll occasionally see this denomination having to merge with this other denomination that's similar. Why? Because they're both dying and they figure we better get in the same boat and pool our resources so we can stay alive a little longer. Jesus said, here's what can revive, revive a dead church. And that's repentance, verse 3. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. It always goes back to what you received, what you heard, the Word of God. Keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. When you abandon truth, when you abandon those things, and you're more, as a church, you're more interested in what the culture is dictating than what the agenda of the Word of God says of how the people of God should be. It may not happen overnight, but over time, the death is sure, and it is coming. In uh, this month, October 31st, is referred to as Reformation Sunday. In 1517, is celebrated as the day that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses of statements and uh, began or sparked what we understand as the Reformation. And, and what is so sad about that, and there again, a lot of great legacy that we are even uh, a part of in our generation, but what's so sad is movements and denominations associated with the name of Luther and Calvin and years later Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and even Charles Wesley Movements of God associated with their names, they're gone. They're dead. They've abandoned the truth. They have a form. They have a form, but they are dead and lifeless. Satan is pleased to hinder the work of God by destroying a church from the inside out. The fifth We'll skip Philadelphia and come back to that. The fifth is the church at Laodicea in verses 14 through 23. This is the lukewarm church. And really, the Laodicean church was the worst of the lot in many ways because it had turned what is referred to as apostate. Apostate or apostasy is, is a total renouncing of the faith. Uh, refuting, a rejection, an abandonment of the faith. And there are people, even some celebrities, that were once well-known Christians in that type of certain circles, and now you know they say, I have, uh, I have disengaged, I'm no longer a Christian. Do you remember what John said? He said, they went out from among us, they rejected us, and it only showed that they were never really one of us. They were really never believers to begin with. And so this church, the lukewarm church, was an apostate church. Jesus said in verse 15 of Revelation 3, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would, you, would that you were either hot, either cold or hot. You see, a person who's cold isn't hypocritical. They're just not interested in the gospel. They're just, they're just cold. They're being honest in that respect or unconcerned person who is hot, uh, well, they are passionate. The Lord says, 
You know, I guess I'd rather you be one or the other than to be lukewarm. Wishy-washy, vanilla, no commitments, no real uh, convictions, uh, always wanting to stay positive. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pa- preachers and churches like that. We never want to we want to never tread on anything and say anything that might upset people, right? Because we want every day to be a Friday, right? We want everything to be positive. Don't be negative. And if you're asked a direct question of what the Bible says about something, you have to figure out a way to finagle an answer that just is like, well, you know, we just all want to get along. Well, how does that help anybody? You go to a doctor and he's giving you a diagnosis. He doesn't want to give you any bad news because, well, look, I, I want you to come back and be my friend. And I don't want to give you any, I don't want to tell you what's killing you. I don't want to tell you what's going to rot you from the inside. I want, I want you just to be, I want you to be my pal. I want you to be my friend. And that's always a danger for a church. And Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. They just kind of wanted to travel down that middle road and not make anybody uneasy or upset. He says to the lukewarm, he says, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will do what? I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, Laodicea is the hypocritical, phony church. A church that really is no church at all. And some of this may be something some of you um, know about, but in history of the Christian church, you had trends that uh, oftentimes are referred to as theological liberalism, and that's, that's in the Laodicean-type churches today, a drift away from the standard and the orthodoxy and the inerrancy of the Word of God, and under the guise of Christianity and form, but they deny the, the Word of God as God's authoritative Word, the deity, the, the, that Jesus Christ is God, a very God. We have to analyze Him as just a man of history. Uh, the resurrection is just a myth. He's you know, resurrected in our hearts, but not a physical resurrection. Uh, other tenets of the faith, there really was no literal Adam and Eve. It was just a, a, a myth that to teach a and so they, again, denigrate the Word of God. And what do you have to stand on when you don't have a foundation? But yet you want to keep all the trappings of being a church when in reality you're not a church. Jesus gives them counsel in verse 17. He says, for you, for you say, saying you Laodiceans, you brag. You see, they're self-deceived because what are they saying? They're saying they're rich. They're prospering. They need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And what is the solution? The solution is, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. You think you're rich? You're not. You're poor. But you may be rich if you buy from me in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He's not talking about physical things. He's talking about spiritual things. Gold. Buy from me gold. Gold symbolizes divine righteousness. When you receive Christ by faith, 
You receive all the, the righteousness of Christ that God imputes to us. Romans 3.22 You might say here this morning, I've got everything I could want. I've got everything the, that I could desire. My, my career and job has enabled me to do just about anything and have everything. But Jesus would say, what does it profit a man or a person, a woman, if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? Jesus says, it's interesting, the remedy, and by the way, you may want to look up the fact, you know, when it says neither hot nor cold, the, the city of Laodicea was well known for a particular hot springs of mineral water that it was well known for. So when he said your, your, your water, you're neither hot nor cold, I mean, they, you know, it was something connected to what, who they were or what they had. When he talked about you need eye salve, there was a medical school there in, in Laodicea, and they had created a particular compound, uh, ISAV, that they were known for in Laodicea that was used in, in medical. So he uses these two references of things. They know, uh, you, you think that you're ophthalmologists of the world but because of your ISAV, because of your medical technology, but I'm telling you, you're, in fact, you're blind, Jesus says. You're blind. You're not rich. You're poor. But I, but I find it interesting that what Jesus counsels them in verse 19 through 20, he concludes the words to the Laodicean church by telling them they need the gospel. They need to be saved. They need salvation. Look what he says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, eat with him, and he with me. Satan certainly created great hindrances, roadblocks, disruption with those five churches. And out of these seven, only two were commended by Christ. Look at the church at Philadelphia. Go back to verse 7 through 13. The church at Philadelphia. This is the faithful church. Although any church can eventually descend into the pit of apostasy, I believe the Lord has given and provided preservatives. You know what a preservative is? It's put into the food so that it doesn't what? Spoil or rot. Uh, it can stay on the shelf longer. It prevents bacteria and mold and all those type of things. It extends its shelf life. And I think the Lord's given some preservatives that we just see a few little uh, examples. One there in the church at Philadelphia is, is evangelism. That characterized the church at Philadelphia. He had good things to say when he talked to Philadelphia. Verse 8 through 9, I know your works, behold... I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet, what does he say? You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well, it must be easy there in Philadelphia. Verse 9, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That Most people think that's referring to unbelieving Jews that were... Uh, hindering the gospel. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. 
Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What has he given them an open door to do? An open door to share the gospel. An open door to preach Christ. An open door to advance the, and be committed to the great commission of Christ. An open door. And why did this church have an open door? Because it was not because they just took territory and withstood the demons of Philadelphia. It was because they were effective at staying true to Christ's word. And they did not, did not deny his name. They were just faithful to the truth. Not any more dramatic than that. They were just true and kept the word of God. And when we are faithful and true, even in the midst of being in the midst of hell itself in our culture, God continues to give us people open doors. He's not hindered. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, the rock of Christ, confession is Son of God, Lord of Lords. Upon this rock, I will what? I will build my church. And the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Guess what? It's better to live in a culture where the government is friendly to Christians. Wouldn't you rather have that? Of course. But do you think the church is dependent on what goes on in Washington? No. Don't get all bumfuzzled over... That's a Greek word. <laughs> Stay faithful to truth. As I was even praying with somebody this morning. God honors faithfulness. And sometimes that faithfulness is costly. And that leads us to the, the, the last church that we'll cover, not last in order, and that's the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. These last two are the more positive, and that's the suffering church. One preservative God uses to protect his body against Satan's hindrances is a, a church that's passionate about the gospel. I'll be honest with you. We're kind of we're a little dull in that area here. I'm not saying we don't believe it. We're not interested in it. We're not doing that individually. But as a church, we need to you know we need to pray about it and we need to figure out ways. Not just to, see this is where churches get in trouble. Not just do more activities. See, you can do a lot of activities and be busy and not be doing what God wants you to do. I don't want to be busy, but I want to say God, how can we? How can we perhaps grow in these areas and grow in evangelism? But another preservative that isn't maybe as fun and as exciting that we see here in Smyrna is the preservative that God uses to protect his church isn't just evangelism, but guess what? It is persecution. Satan was the source of persecution. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now he says to this, he says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. Why are they rich? Because they're rich in Christ. See the contrast? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are again, here we see that synagogue of Satan. Those are Jews that are opposing Christ. Verse 10, do not fear, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. You see, persecution was a normal way of life for most of church history. At least the first three, four hundred years. And certainly in some parts of the world, and I think in... um, Sunday, November 7th, we're going to uh, talk about the persecuted church around the world and take time to pray for that uh, uh, on November 7th. One historian said to become a Christian meant the great renunciation, the joining of a despised and persecuted sect, the swimming against the tide of popular prejudice, the coming under the ban of the Roman Empire, the possibility at any moment of imprisonment and death under its most Fearful forms. That was, it says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. What did he not say? I want you to bind the enemy. I want you to go out and do a march against this territory the devil has. And I want you to start engaging these demons. He didn't say anything like that. But look what he says at verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Three quick things and we'll be done. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. Satan is defeated. We don't fear him. We're not overly preoccupied. But the Bible of great balance explains to us that he still seeks to hinder the gospel. That's why we're told to put on the full armor all the truths. But as soldiers of the cross, three quick things, very quick. One, we're to endure hardship. That's not a prosperity message, is it? Endure hardship. Paul said to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We're interested in pleasing God. Endure hardship. Secondly, fight the good fight. You know what a good fight is? The fight you win. 1 Timothy 1, 18-19, you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered, what? Shipwreck in regard to their faith. The Greek word fight is the word that means agonize. This is an agonizing fight. This is a real battle to fight the good fight. And you know, Satan fights dirty, doesn't he? The Bible says that he often will masquerade himself as an angel of light, appearing to be a servant of righteousness. That's why you need to be engaged in the truth. You need to be learning the Word of God. You need to have the God-given ability of discernment. Discernment is the cut it straight. Not to just know right and wrong, to know right from almost right. 
almost right. And last is stand firm. I'll close with these words from the Apostle Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, your enemy. You have an enemy. The devil, he identifies him. What does he do? He prowls around like. He didn't say he is. There's only one lion of Judah. Like, prances around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Verse 9. Rebuke him. Do a march. Take territorial spirits. What does it say? Resist him. Resist him. But you're resisting him how? Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him. Resist him. We're not fearful of the enemy who hinders the work of God. Our confidence isn't being obsessed with demons behind every rock. Throw away the paperback books. Get rid of that garbage. Quit getting your theology from novels. Get into the Word of God. Get a view of who God is. Look full into His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray.